Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. I'm Pastor Rob, and it's a pleasure to worship with you. Wow, what a beginning. This has just been amazing. We're just going to dig into the, the Word. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm a, on a more lighter note, um, I'm not a big TV or movie person, but I, I watched a show years ago, um, I don't know if there's a picture of it, I, I tried to send it to you guys up there, it's uh, The Undercover Boss, I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Um, kind of interesting, they have... Um, the boss, the CEO, or some executive stoop down to the entry-level person. And they don't know, you know, like, as they're walking through, uh, you know, doing the, the job, they're kind of like, uh, maybe they're told that this is an, a, a trainee, we're doing a training video. They do this foot, photography and uh, interviews, and uh, people have no idea of who they're with. And, and they, these executives, they'll humble themselves, and at the end, there's this, you know, great reveal, like, oh, did you know that this is the CFO, this is the COO, this is the CEO? And uh, though maybe, you know, a single mom will get a, they'll give a car so that she can get to work, or a young kid who's like, man, I really want to go and do this in my life, but I'm just doing this job to, you know, pay for school, and they give them a scholarship, or maybe someone's been a faithful worker for years, and they'll, they'll promote them. And in some cases, you know, in 2013, I read they, they fired a guy. <laughs> um, but it's amazing. That first episode, that first season is Waste Management's COO. And he, he, he stoops down a level to follow a guy in the porta potties, getting cleaning those things out. And um, then um, he blesses employees at the end. And I bring this up because in Matthew chapter 3, I don't think people get what's happening. That the the Lord of history is with them. And we get to see a little bit more about who Jesus is as we walk through our sermon series. We're going slowly through Matthew. Um, it's going to be a while, and we're just taking chunk by chunk. So we just opened a chapter 3 last week. Jeff did a great job. I hope you could catch that. And this week we're going to continue and read the rest of Matthew chapter 3. If you remember, John the Baptist is there, Jesus' cousin, and he castigates. He, he, he kind of attacks Sadducees and Pharisees, these religious guys who came out. And he, why does he do that? It's because of their pride. They think there's something because of their religiosity, because of their national heritage. He calls them, you brood of vipers. And they came to see what was going on in the wilderness, and everybody else was out there. He told them, they, what did they need to do? They needed to repent. They needed to turn from their sin and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's preaching that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, friends, is at hand. John, you see, is a signpost marking that the Messiah, the Christ, is on his way. And then all of a sudden, in the passage for us today, Jesus appears. Jesus shows up at the river. And from the rest of the book of Matthew, we see that this revelation of who he was, it's not going to answer all these people's questions. Years have passed, you know, if you remember, years have passed since Herod was there and he slaughters these innocent children trying to kill Jesus. Time had flown by since Jesus and his family ran away to Egypt for safety and then ran and came back. And finally, in our passage, like a grand reveal, like the undercover boss, Jesus humbles himself, experiences baptism, 
and reveals a part of his mission. And then a sign from God identifies and recognizes and endorses who Jesus is. We and John and the other readers of Matthew will learn a few things. So let's see it for ourselves. If you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. I've asked Justine McNabb, you want to come up here? She's going to read for us. If you can, you stand, stand with us as we honor the Lord with his word. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented himself, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this story and sending your one and only Son to live, to die, to rise on our behalf. We, we love you. And we need you. Show us yourself and your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So remember where we've been in Matthew. He begins with a genealogy. Some of you guys might be genealogy buffs, but most of us, that's uh, a little different. He goes, because with genealogy, what is he saying? He's saying Jesus is the son. He's related to Abraham. And he's a son of David. Next, Matthew tells us that he is Christ, the Messiah, a prophesied one. Being the Messiah meant he was descendant, he had to be descendant from David and a descendant of Abraham. Now, most of Israel is biologically connected to Abraham unless they converted. Um, however, they didn't experience the fulfillment of the prophecy that through Abraham we would bless all nations. And so they hadn't seen the fulfillment of that. Now, David is a little different, it's a more narrower genealogical line, and there was a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7 that from him, one of his descendants would be a king who would reign forever and a kingdom that would never end. This prophecy has not been fulfilled, and Jesus is going to fulfill both of them. In the next part of chapter 1, we hear a messenger of the Lord, an angel, tells Joseph that his wife is pregnant miraculously. She conceives a son by the Holy Spirit, and his name shall be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. This is a fulfillment, the angel says, of, or Matthew says, of Isaiah chapter 7. This is what it says in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. In chapter 2, we learn that this Son, this God with us, this Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah has an enemy. And who is his enemy? His enemy is King Herod. And what does he want? He wants his death. He sought to kill baby Jesus before it was too late. But according to five prophecies, what, what he meant for evil, God meant for good. Jesus would live. God knows the end from the beginning, and he sends a dream after dream after dream, warning and, and shaping these events and saving Jesus from destruction, 
bringing him to Egypt, and then bringing him back to safety in Israel. And then we get to chapter 3. Decades have gone by now. So Jesus was a baby, and now he is a man. And we hear about John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He has gathered people from all over. You know, there isn't social media. There isn't, you know, all this entertainment that we have now. This is, the, this is maybe a hopeful, you know, prophet, or maybe it's just entertainment. We don't know why, but everyone's coming. And for various reasons, they're coming to see from all over. And he's kind of like the, I was thinking of it, he's kind of like a, a mix between a Civil War reenactor and a street protester. He's wearing camel's hair, he's eating bugs, he's telling people, you need to repent. And then when the religious people, the Sadducees and Pharisees come there, he is uh, even more strong. And then he preaches that there's going to be one, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there's going to be one who's his baptism, his call for repentance or whatever he's going to say is, is greater. It is the Holy Spirit and fire he's going to be baptizing you with. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoe. And then we get to verse 13. Jesus arrives. And we're going to see, I think in this passage, we see two things, his identity and his mission. His identity and his mission. In this passage, we talked in our Sunday school class before this, how do you break this up? I think you can structure it in, in my mind, three sections. The first verse is an overview of where we're going. And then verse 14 and 15 is this interaction with John the Baptist. And then in verse 16 and 17 is an interaction between the Trinity, Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. These verses are are moving us along. Matthew is documenting a biography of Jesus. He's moving us along. Who is Jesus? Who do we think Jesus is? He starts at the beginning, and he moves us along to identify his identity and mission in this passage. These details fit with the overall theme, and we see those on the poster out there. The overall theme we think of Matthew is follow the, his, the promised king into his kingdom. It's a call for us to follow the promised king into his kingdom. So let's dig at verse 13. We're just going to go verse by verse. So if you have a Bible, if you have a pen and paper, we can take some notes and think through what is this saying so that we can get at what does this mean for us. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus went public. He's going public in his adulthood ministry. This is a momentous occasion. People have anticipated the Messiah for centuries. The last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, and there's 400 years of silence where God doesn't send a prophet, God doesn't speak, thus says the Lord, and they don't hear from God, and they're waiting. And Malachi ends, looking forward to one like Elijah who will come to usher in the day of the Lord. And John the Baptist is there, like Elijah, at the River Jordan, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The commentary I read describes the, the distance between Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of religious Thought and society in Israel is 25 miles from Jerusalem to Jordan. So people likely travel 25 miles. Jesus is in Nazareth. He spends his, his days growing up in Nazareth and Galilee after he fled Egypt, and that's about 75 miles. Both are quite a distance. And suppose the distance uh, is at 25 miles. You could say, if that's the case, that's, I mean, that's the nearest case, that, that's about a marathon. 
Have you ever run a marathon? It's, I just did a couple weeks ago with a, f- a few uh, friends, and we did this route up in Munising, and um, we had to train for months. And it took me, I mean, I, I felt pretty good. It took me four and a half hours. So imagine traveling. I mean, that'd be running. These people weren't running. They're going up and down hills to get to the river to hear John. Probably a day or two. If it's 75 miles, for sure, it's, it's a ways. They didn't have, um, like, planes and trains and, and boats. You know, 75 miles from here, just to give you a, a ballpark figure, is like from here to Holland. So after church, we're going to go. We're going to go and hear this guy speak. And you're going to walk. You know, maybe they had chariots, but most people probably didn't have those. Maybe they had camels or, or um, donkeys, but that didn't speed things up that much. And so we're going to walk 75 miles. We're going to walk 25 miles. 75 miles from here to as, as a bird flies. It's here to O'Hare International Airport. So it's quite a distance. So people were motivated. They wanted to hear what John had to say. And Jesus wanted to be there too. Why? What was he wanting? What was happening? Who is he? Look at verse 14. John would have prevented him. Maybe he wants to be baptized. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and and you come to me? John tries to what? He tries to stop Jesus. He's not against him, but this doesn't make sense. Does it make sense to you? Does it seem appropriate for Jesus to be baptized? I think John has a point. Let's go back to verse 11. What does verse 11 say? John the Baptist describes his baptism. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So you see his issue. Repentance means turning. It's symbolic of realignment. People were confessing their sins and adjusting their lives to God, yet has Jesus sinned? No, he's never sinned. Hebrews teaches this, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, for we don't have a high priest, it's talking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's just one verse demonstrating Jesus is perfect. He's pure and spotless. He always was righteous, and he still is today, 2,000 years later. He didn't need to be baptized to be cleansed from his sin. On top of that, remember John is saying that he's not even worthy. John is not even worthy to untie his shoe. So you look at your shoes. Maybe they're dirty. These guys had sandals on, and they were walking around in the dirt. They're even more dirty. I think feet are, are still kind of like, ah, do you want to touch someone else's foot? He's like, I, I'm not even worthy to do that. When they came to people's homes, a, a, a sign of hospitality was to wash another's feet, and they would have slaves or servants do that. He's like, I'm not worthy to do that. And here, moments after he says that, you see Jesus on the scene saying, I want you to baptize me. Think of the shock he must have felt. He said that Jesus is actually going to offer a different baptism, a baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit. Now he wants to be baptized by John with John's baptism. Why? John would have prevented him. He said, I need to be baptized to you, and you come to me? John recognized that Jesus is greater than him. So why should Jesus submit himself to this ritual? Jesus is not like the Pharisees and Sadducees there, nor the masses. 
Instead, he came to do what? What was his mission? We've already seen it in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. His mission is to forgive people of their sins, to free people from their sins. And in verse 23 of chapter 1, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is perfect. Thus, John, you know, maybe like you and I, he's trying to stop Jesus. I think you got it wrong here. Let me baptize you, or let me you baptize me. How does Jesus respond to that? Look at verse 15. What does verse 15 say? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Jesus says he needs to be baptized. Why? It was to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Logically, it doesn't mean that he needs to become righteous. We've already kind of looked at that. I think it relates to Jesus' mission. We already talked about in Matthew chapter 1, or 21. It relates to his mission. He is greater than Moses. He fled Egypt like Abraham's family. And God the Father spared him from an evil king and the slaughter of children. And he, he's going to pass through water before he heads to the wilderness like Moses did in the Red Sea. The act of baptism was an introduction to Jesus and his adult ministry. And I think it relates to being a son of Abraham and a son of David and greater than Moses and what Isaiah predicted in 700 years in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. Some of this is a mystery to me, and I think we can speculate, but there's some things we do know. And Isaiah 53, 11 is specifically talking about Jesus, this suffering servant. And in verse 11, it says this, By his knowledge shall the righteous one, he's talking about Jesus, my servant, God's servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He's going to make many righteous. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church, looking back on Jesus' mission. And he says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. It's apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in our Justified by what? His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How? Whom God put forward as a propitiation. It's a sacrifice. How? By his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness. Because it is divine forbearance. Forbearance means what? It means patience. He passed over. God passed over former sins. Those sins in your past, those sins in your closet, those things we did yesterday, he passed over former sins. Why? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus? This passage is saying, if you have faith in Jesus, then you have righteousness. And Jesus is saying, I need to be baptized for righteousness, for righteousness' sakes. Jesus would, by his blood, through our faith in his work, give us right standing before God. So, brothers and sisters, we can claim the righteousness of God, not based on what we did yesterday, or what we thought this morning, or what we said this week, 
based on what he did on the cross. This was God the Father's plan from the beginning and Jesus' mission all along. How? How is he able to make this happen? Paul says this to another church, the Corinthian church. In chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, For our sake, church, he, God, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. Remember that? He is righteous. He is perfect. He is pure. He is blameless. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Feel that. Feel that robe of righteousness on your shoulders. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done. Jesus has become our substitute. And he's connecting somehow this baptism mysteriously to this part of what he is doing. He is is going to be our righteousness. His incarnation is critical. God became man and dwelt among us. His baptism apparently is critical. His perfect life is essential. His death is essential. And his resurrection, too. How many are going to school this fall? Raise your hand if you're going to school. You get used to that, right? In school, we're going to be raising our hand for teachers. And unless you're homeschooled, maybe in co-op or CC, you still have to raise your hand. What happens if your teacher's sick? Maybe they cancel. But for the most part, when I was growing up, you get a substitute. You have to do a replacement. Um, we had a Sunday, Sunday school switch out. You know, we have a substitute teacher come in. Substitutes stand in the place of another. In the same way we sang about this, Jesus is our substitute. The truth is, our stance before God, apart from that substitute, is not good. We are spiritually sick. Sick. We are. We might feel healthy. Our, our neighbors and coworkers and friends and classmates—they may look healthy. You might know someone who can bench, you know, what, is 200 pounds a lot or run faster than you. Um, But we all have a severe, critical, terminal problem. In fact, our, our, our status is worse than that apart from this substitute. We are stillborn. We are like, I was thinking about this, we are like zombies, walking dead, playing in the dirt, telling everyone we're fine. And if we're not fine, it's someone else's fault. And our hope is in some bankrupt solution. Sadly, there are more people that way than not. I was with a group of pastors, and they're like, what's, what's the biggest problem in the church? And I started thinking, what's the biggest problem in the world? And the biggest problem is people don't know this truth. I mean, the lovely thing is it's right here before us in the pages of Scripture. By the power of the Holy Spirit, if you understand this, your eyes are opened. And this is, this is good news. But there's a lot of bad news out there. Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to get to this down the road in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You see, the the majority of the world is headed in a bad direction. Friends, we cannot stand before God on our own merit. 
He is pure, spotless, and blameless while we are not. In this same sermon, Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, then what is, what is there to do? How do we be righteous? Well, that's why Jesus came. That's why he was to fulfill righteousness, because we can never attain it on our own. It's only through his substitution we are clean. And if we don't repent and believe in Jesus as our Savior before we die, we will face his judgment and fiery fury. John knew this in part, and Jesus knows this in full, and thus the good news, the good news about Jesus' mission and his identity is that he took our place, and he bore our sin. He ministered and died and rose, and he became our righteousness, and he saves his people from selfish pride, whether they come from the uh, line of Pharisees and Sadducees or whether they're just the, the masses. How? How does he do that? It's through his death. He's the only suitable replacement. He took the curse and bled and suffered God's anger so we would be forgiven. And we can be brothers and sisters forever. That's astounding. That's amazing. That's, that's good news, isn't it? Thus, in some way, that he sees this baptism as a necessary part to fulfill all righteousness. The king has come. He steps into the water. He submits himself to the initiation rite, acknowledging sin and the need for change in God, and he passes through the water. He comes up out of the water and points us to the promised land of hope, a heavenly kingdom, the kingdom which is fast approaching. And we get to verses 16 and 17. Look at verses 16 and 17. The kingdom of heaven explodes. The sky rips open. And we see the Spirit of God rest on Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We've heard about the Holy Spirit in Matthew 4. This is the fourth time. You may recall the Spirit comes upon Mary and she conceives and gives birth to Jesus. John talks about Jesus bringing the Spirit, baptizing with the Spirit. Now the Trinity is in full display. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And for those listening, these are Old Testament guys. They know their Bible. And so I brought this up in Sunday school. I'll just read it. One verse. verse. They're, they're seeing these signs being fulfilled again and again and again. And so I think they have Isaiah in mind. We've already talked about Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Chapter 2, there's five prophecies that are fulfilled. Here in, Isaiah, in chapter 3, we have Isaiah 42, verse 1. You hear a couple words that are, are familiar. The Holy Spirit doesn't suddenly appear in the New Testament, and he's not in the Old Testament. He's in the Old Testament, just a little harder to see. And he's in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. This is what it says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. They were looking for a political rise of, of power and someone to, to champion their nation. They're looking for someone who is strong, a king like David to come, to do something great, 
to make Israel special again and free them from the oppression of those like the Romans who were over them. They're longing for justice. And I think in America, we can think through, we can say, yeah, we want justice. You look in the news, we want justice. There's a little interest about international politics and life and, and well-being. Friends, God cares way more about justice than we ever have or our country has. And one day in Amos 5.24 says, justice will flow like, it will roll down uh, like a river, like, like a never-flowing stream, and, and it will never end, and righteousness will flow like a never-flowing stream or never-failing stream. For some, when this justice comes, it is going to be terrifying. And for others, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be good news, praiseworthy, more exciting than a Super Bowl or a World Series or a, a championship battle. And victory. And spirit, the skies part. You just picture it. And the, and the, spirit, the spirit lands on Jesus. And it gives a, a proof of, of the distinct nature of, of each person of the Trinity. And some people are like, so what's this Trinity about? And is that really in the Bible? Well, here you see there are three separate persons. The Father speaking. The Son's right there. The, the Spirit descends upon on him. So we believe that the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the, the Father is not the Spirit and the Son. The Spirit is not the Son and the Father, and the Son's not the Father and the Spirit. We've seen these, their, their, their divine personhood represented here and, and elsewhere, actually in Matthew chapter 28. You might remember Matthew 28 at the end. It says, All authority in, in heaven... And on earth has been given to me, Jesus is speaking, he's talking to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the what? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So who is Jesus? What's he about? We're beginning, as we go through Matthew, to get a little more clarity about who he is. And what he is about, what his mission is. He is about bringing righteousness, fulfilling righteousness of God to the unrighteous. What else do we learn? We learn that the Holy Spirit is, is descending on him. There's this intimate connection between the Son and the Spirit. Now that might strike you as odd. You're thinking, why does Jesus need to be baptized? And why, why is the Spirit on him? Isn't the Spirit of God everywhere? Isn't God all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present? We've seen that the Spirit conceived Jesus, so how does this work? Some of this is a mystery. We, we know what the Scripture says. The Scripture is true, and so we rely on the Scripture. However, there is a sense that the Spirit is visibly, palpably present in ways that, for his determined purpose. And he rests on Jesus. Interestingly, he says, wherever two or more are gathered, he's in there in our midst. And so the Spirit is here as well. Well, that's not all we learn. We, we discover what the Father's heart is. What does God want? Did you, want to, you want to get the mind of God and understand his heart and mind? The Son, he says, is the object of his delight and affection. 
So what? I was thinking about this. What, what does that matter? Well, God is amazing. He created us. He sustains us. Should we not care what he cares about? I was thinking, how do we, you know, knowing what someone cares about, how does that impact us? Well, if you're going to date somebody, and you hear that that person likes, let's say they like Disney movies, and Italian food, and um, let's say, what did I, what did I, I was thinking, the Beatles. So a date idea might be to go on a trip to the movie theaters to watch a Disney film, go out to eat, and you're driving listening to Beatles music. Because you, why? Because you care about that person. You want to invest yourself in what they're excited about and they're interested in. We pay attention to what they pay attention to. God wants our attention. I think that's what this is about. This, we, we, we take Sunday and morning and we focus our minds on, on God. And sometimes that's really hard, right? There's distractions. There's Sunday afternoon. There's sports. There's you know, stuff going on inside us. Even for me, right? So how do I focus on God? So we sing, we pray, we read, we listen. God wants our attention. And he invites us into this opportunity to meet him. This isn't just a hoop we jump through. Hey, we did it. Checked it off the list. We, whether, whatever our age, wherever we're at, whatever we've done, have an opportunity to meet with the Lord, the real Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, and pay attention to him. And then we can pay attention to what he pay attention, pays attention to. John the Baptist, the Spirit, and the Father I think are examples for us to consider. We want to follow the promised king into his kingdom. So let's consider who he is. Who is this king? And what is he about? What is his mission? If we know who he is and what he's about, then let us think about what difference that should make in our lives. What did we see John do in this passage? He consented. He followed, he obeyed Jesus, he baptized him. Even if you think about how awkward that would be, he did it. What do we see the Spirit do? He went to Jesus. What do we see the Father do? He loved and delighted in Jesus. What about you? Will you follow the promised king into his kingdom? Will you consent? Will you move towards? Will you love? Will you delight in? St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until it rests in God. And we're on a journey, and he invites us on this journey where our goodness isn't our ability to, to continue to follow him. It's our, our hope in him. And this journey is much like a marathon. It's long. There's ups and downs. There's distractions. When I was running a couple weeks ago, so we went up to Munising. There's this island, and I've told the story to a couple people. They said all, for marathoners, there's flags on the right, intermittently, these orange flags. So follow the orange flags. There's two other routes. And then for our, our route, there's an out and back. So you, you travel out. So mile six, we, out, we, we travel a, you know, a mile or so, and then there, there's a turnaround. In this turnaround, they, they said there's a bunch of trees down because of the weather. So you're going to have to jump and climb over trees. And so, okay, so, but at the end, there's, we got there. My, I was running with my brother, and, it, and he's like, hey, when we get there, let's, let's touch the tree and turn around. 
so we touch a tree, and there's a sign that says, turn around. So we ran, and then my, my foot bumped it. I'm like, okay, we turn around, and I'm, I'm, we're going. I'm thinking, I wonder, I wonder what happened there. I turn around, and I knock the sign over, so it didn't say, the turnover, turnaround is gone now. And I thought, oh, I better, I better put that back up there. <laughs> and I did. Some, my younger self would be like, that'd be funny, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and the reason I bring this up is the Lord has given us some direction here. He gives us his word, and he invites us by the power of the Holy Spirit to hear his still, small voice through the word and through each other in community. So we might have perspective and, and insight, so we can use our gifts to bless each other, and we can be blessed by one another in community as we relate to each other and relate to his word and, and sing it and pray it and hear it. And so he invites us into relationship. Will you listen? You may not be ready for a 26, 25-mile run after church here, but think about this. Who makes you happy? Because the Father looked at the Son, and he made him happy. Who do you love? Because the Father looks at the Son, and he loves his Son. Who are you moving towards? Or what are you moving towards? The Spirit, the Son, and the Spirit and, the, and John are moving towards Jesus. Who are you following? You know, we can answer these in many ways. Not all of them bad, right? I mean, there's different levels. But ultimately, we want to be following the promised king into the kingdom, into his kingdom. What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? We're not alone. We're not islands. Let's pursue him. Let's pray. God, we just are so thankful that you gave us your son, Jesus, to be our righteousness because we aren't. Apart from him, we're lost. I'm lost. We thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you've given us your Holy Spirit, that you're present, and that you give us your spirit to help us follow you, to know you, to experience you. We need you. Father, we love you and we worship you and we praise you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.